Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gagino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back to another episode of Pediatric Meltdown. And today's episode is in observance of Apraxia Awareness Month. So I didn't know that was a thing, but we certainly know Apraxia is. And what better way to bring awareness than to bring an expert to the podcast? My guest today is Dr. Cheryl Rosen, and she is a repeat visitor, having done a really nice episode with me on autism. And she is here today to share some information about apraxia and dysfluencies. Dr. Cheryl Rosen is a speech and language pathologist, professor, and certified autism specialist with 25 years of experience in the field. She has presented around the world and has been published in research journals on best practices in assessment and intervention for individuals with autism spectrum disorders. She is the owner and director of Palm Beach Speech and Language Specialists in South Florida and the founder and consulting director of the St. Kitts Spectrum Services Center in St. Kitts, the first autism clinic in the Caribbean. Dr. Rosen was the recipient of the 2017 Louis M. DiCarlo Award for Clinical Achievement from the American Speech and Language Hearing Association. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Rosen back to the podcast. Hi, Cheryl. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I want to thank you so much for making an appearance on the podcast again and uh bringing your information back to listeners. So thanks so much for doing this. Of course, it's my pleasure. Well, we're going to start out with, you know, people may not know that May is Apraxia Awareness Month. I did not know that. And so I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about apraxia and some disfluencies. And because I think it's common, um, a lot of people in primary care we see this all the time. And maybe just some information. I think that um, there are things that I thought were away, but after talking to you, I'm like, huh, maybe I need to know more about this. So we talked in episode 59 about autism and speech and why it was so important to get referrals early. And I'm guessing that referrals early for apraxia makes sense too, right? Yes, definitely. You know, as we know, children who are offered services earlier, early in life, then, you know, the better outcomes that they can have just so much better for their brain to start working on those things early and for them to develop those nice, healthy speech habits from the onset. Yep. So that's going to be one of the big takeaways today. So Mm -hmm. let's start with What's the basics and definitions of apraxia? Yeah, so apraxia of speech is something that I'm excited that we get to talk about today because I feel that there are some confusions, you know, even in the field of speech pathology about apraxia um, because they're what we're talking about today or what I would really like to emphasize is something called childhood apraxia of speech, um, which is definitely similar to apraxia of speech in adults in its presentation. However, the etiologies 
can be different and also may be confusing to somebody who is looking at somebody's speech patterns and trying to differentially diagnose this specific type of disorder, whether it is apraxia of speech, which I'll talk to you about and what that definition is, or whether it's two other similar types of speech disorders. One is articulation disorder and the other is a phonological processes disorder. So there's this continuum, you know, to decide along, you know, which one is it. And it's important for us to know the differences. And so when I talk about apraxia of speech, you'll see that there are clear differences between that disorder and the other two that I mentioned. And so childhood apraxia of speech is something that's similar to adults because there are some patterns where the child is having difficulty communicating just like an adult where they may have some groping where we see the sounds not really coming out and they're trying really hard and you know that they're trying to say something but it's not coming out and that is also common in adults but the main difference is that we don't really have a definite etiology in childhood apraxia of speech because in adults, it's related to either an accident, injury, or stroke. With kids, it could be just clearly developmental. And the area of the brain that's responsible for the motor planning, which is what apraxia is, it's a motor speech disorder where there is difficulty planning and coordinating the motor movements from the brain to the mouth. So basically, the brain knows what it wants to say, but it's having a really hard time planning, and coordinating those movements to get the speech sounds out, which is really all about volitional control of speech. And so you'll find with people, both adults and children who have apraxia of speech, where one minute they may pop out the word perfectly and they may say apple when they want an apple or they see an apple, but then you ask them, what is this or what do you want? And they can't plan and coordinate those motor movements to make that sound happen or make that word come out. And then the parents, you know, are confused and also kind of frustrated because they say, well, they said it. They've already said it. They can say it. Why can't they say it now? And so we really need to explain and understand motor planning and how complex that really can be. Yeah, I'm I'm just, envisioning kids that I've seen. And um, I love that description of kind of the frustration of, I know what I want to say and I can't say it. And I, I imagine, especially in those younger kids, because I'm thinking some of that's like normal developmental, like, you know, the 18 month old who wants to say what they want and, you know, their, their number of words just normally and developmentally is limited. And then they bite or they hit you because they're so frustrated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But so what's the, the most common presentation of then true apraxia? I mean, at what age and, and what's it sound like? Yeah. So that's the really defining difference is that groping behavior where you really don't see that in any other type of speech disorder. And that's where we're going to talk about, you know, stuttering or disfluencies next. And there are some similar presentations in that, but it's not true groping where they're just searching for the movement. How do I get this sound out? And you see them really moving their lips and their mouth. And, you know, parents will say like, I see them moving their mouth, but nothing is coming out. And that's exactly the visual presentation of somebody with apraxia. Now, it's not always that case too, because there can be some children who will say 
words and our phrases. But again, it's that inconsistent communication so that sometimes they can say it, sometimes they can't, again, due to the motor planning, or they'll have some distortions. Typically, vowel distortions will be a primary characteristic of apraxia as well. So their vowels just don't come out as intended. And I'd say that's really the the biggest sort of detection or diagnostic criteria that we're looking for um, in order to decide whether it's apraxia or some other type of communication disorder. So if we put autism aside, so that delayed language, and I'm seeing, say, an 18-month-old who has, say, five spoken words, and we're expecting more by that age, would that fall under apraxia? And so it could, you know, and that's where a professional obviously really comes in and and can decide whether it is that or not. And that's why it would be great for a referral, knowing just that there's a limited amount of vocabulary that's occurring right now at this age. So I think, you know, a referral either way, whether you're able to determine whether it's a praxy or not, it would be beneficial. However, um, you know, if you would start asking maybe a little bit more questions about those words that they may have, you know, if parents say they have about five words, we would want to know, well, can they say those upon command? So can they imitate those same five words if you ask them to say them? Or are you, do you notice that your child is, you know, moving their mouth and the sounds just aren't really coming out? And have you ever noticed that they can say those words sometimes and then they just can't, don't, they won't say it again, you know, but maybe a month later it just pops back out. So I think I would probably probe for those kinds of questions. And then you may be thinking more on the lines of, you know what, this could be a motor speech disorder. Um, And sometimes because apraxia is really relates to motor planning and coordination, you may see some fine and gross motor delays as well, because you're like thinking about planning in general, motor planning. And so that could be associated with it because you also have to plan and, you know, the motor movements of your body. So maybe kind of that clumsy child that is falling down, you know, or tripping a lot and that there could be some correlation there that might lead you more into thinking this is along the lines of apraxia. So for, you know, if I'm again thinking about a kiddo who's got pretty normal developmental milestones, but really just doesn't have very many words, what else would be in that differential diagnosis besides apraxia? Are there some just developmental, just delay of actually knowing that number of words? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's a variety of things, definitely. So, you know, one could be autism, which we've talked about before, right, that there are, you know, the, the lack of communication, that reciprocity, that back and forth, and really using words to communicate effectively with other people. That's one reason. Others could be, you know, an articulation disorder so that the words are so distorted. There's, you know, different kinds of deletions and substitutions that it sounds just like a lot of jargon. And they may even be real using real words, but we weren't able to decode them because of the severity of an articulation disorder. Or there could be something, as I mentioned earlier, called the phonological processes disorder, which can also sound like a lot of jargon. Um, And the differences between that 
and an articulation disorder are also subtle and can be confusing to the novel or the novice, you know, professional, um, because phonological processes disorder is all about these very specific process, phonological processes that they're using, like something called fronting or backing or gliding or nasalizations or just a lot of different speech pathologist terms of, you know, what the phonological processes could be. Um, and that can make a, for a very unintelligible child. So for example, you know, if they're doing a lot of fronting of sounds, they would be fronting their velar or their back sounds to the front. So they would say, you know, tat instead of cat. And so those words might be very unintelligible. So we don't know if they really have a larger vocabulary than is reported. So they could appear to only have five words, but could really be using, you know, 50 words. We just don't understand them. This is complicated. I guess that's why we have experts like you to help us, right? So maybe yeah. my my job isn't exactly pinpointing, but but it is to say, oh, something something's up. So so what's the treatment look like? I mean, how do you work with a kiddo on trying to say more words? Yeah. Well, and I just want to sort of back up for one second before we talk about that too follow up on what you just said. And, and obviously, yes, you know, same with us, you know, if we feel there's something more going on, you know, we might say you need to go back and consult with your pediatrician or, you know, other professionals. So the good thing is that we are referring, you know, to each other without necessarily knowing that specific type of disorder or what it may be. But what I what I really appreciate and like that we're having this conversation is that, you know, I feel like just saying, well, your child has delayed language or their speech is unclear and just referring, but you, you know, the conversation of saying, I know I'm not a speech pathologist, but there's multiple speech disorders that this could be. And so that the parent is open to maybe that first conversation that when they come, it's not just, oh, you have a speech disorder because they have said in the past, well, oh, I have praxia. Wow, my, my, you know, physician, my pediatrician didn't say anything about that. That sounds pretty complicated. You know, maybe, are you sure that's what that is? So almost, you know, coming from that perspective of we're going to refer you for speech and there's a variety of different speech disorders and the speech pathologist will be able to um, diagnose, you know, which one according to the evaluation and the symptoms your child is presenting. So it's a good thing to just kind of open up that conversation about when what they might see or hear when they are referred and see the professional. And I remember having that discussion about autism so that it's not just like a huge surprise that it might be helpful to list. There are several things that this could be. Mm -hmm. um, you know, certainly autism is one of those things. I'm not sure yet. Um, we just really need to get some more information. It could be um, apraxia. It could be several other things. Um, just so, you know, we don't know yet for sure, but right. we'll, we'll figure it out. Yeah. I mean, it definitely is just a great gateway to having a conversation with the family when it comes from the pediatrician first. I don't think that they're devaluing what we're saying, but it just really is important to have some kind of honest and open conversation um, with the parent when you refer, or just giving them, you know, what they might hear or see when they go to, you know, the professional. I just had a parent meeting, you know, right before this, and I was going over some results of our assessment and it wasn't apraxia. It actually happened to be an autism case. And, you know, the parent really 
of course, didn't feel happy about the, the situation and had some tears in her eyes, but she really was thankful. She said, you know, I've seen two other people before this, and I'm really happy that you are telling me what the situation is and that I now know, you know, what is happening with my child. And I feel sad that I've wasted six months with two other professionals and my pediatrician never mentioning this to me. So that's where, you know, you are the first point of contact, really whatever it is, whether it's autism or whether it is speech, a speech disorder, that it's so important for these words to be said to parents, because even though it's so hard in the beginning, they feel relieved just knowing, okay, there is this is something and what can we do about it? And there is something that we can do about it and that therapy helps. So to your question about treatment, <laughs> I can talk about that next. But you know what, you have- before we do that, because I had it in my head, it's like, okay, well, what exactly does an assessment look like? I mean, do you just come in and have the kid try and talk? I mean, what what's that mm-hmm. look like in real time? Right, right. It's a great question. And so because it's early intervention, you know, most often these are young children who are being referred to us. Um, Everything that we do is done through play. So we do a very playful um, assessment that's both standardized and non-standardized. So most of our standardized assessments, because the child is young and especially if they're going to be apraxic um, or having a speech delay or language disorder, we're not going to get a lot of output from them. Right. So we're going to look at their receptive language first. What do they understand? You know, what's their auditory attention like? What's their auditory retention like? What's their auditory comprehension like? What's their auditory uh, processing like? So all done through play and seeing what they can do in response to our auditory information. And then we'll do some probing for some expressive language for so by presenting items that they like and seeing if they can name any of them. Also, what's their oral motor skills like? Can they blow some bubbles? Can they get their lips out? Can they, you know, approximate any of those speech sounds? Can they, we do an oral motor exam. So we look to see, you know, do they have the structure and function? Do you have appropriate speech because their articulators are, you know, working the way they should? Or also one other Differential diagnosis we didn't talk about is um, dysarthria, right? So do they have any oral motor weakness? We have to look at that because that would also be very important to the diagnostic process. So, but we do it all through play and fun and really just, you know, bringing out stimuli that the child would would enjoy interacting with. And we also bring the parents in and we have them play with the child as well with us um, and see if they can probe for some of the things that maybe we're not getting a response on. And then in order to standardize it, we do parent questionnaires that are standard assessments. And so then we can get an idea of where the child is compared to same age peers. So Now, if it is apraxia, what's therapy look like? So therapy, we use motor speech therapy, right, which is really all about the planning and coordination. And so we have to do a lot of drill-based type of things, which can be hard for young children. But it's really the only way that we're going to improve the apraxia because 
it's like, think about any sport that you play. And I try to use this analogy for a parent, right? You have to do that repetition of that motor movement over and over and over again in order to really get it down, right? So if you play tennis and you're swinging that racket and you have somebody, you know, your instructor telling you to twist your arm or however you need to do it to make that swing better, you have to practice it that way over and over and over. And it becomes a new motor plan and you don't have to think about it anymore. So it's the same thing with the speech as we have to get that motor plan activated. We have to start to acquire on command those sounds to produce words and phrases with clarity. So in the beginning, it's just let's play and have fun. And then we start to bring in the drills, which are along a hierarchy. So we first start off with vowels and then vowel, vowel, and then vowel, vowel with a vowel change. So it's not just you know, ah, uh, a e i o, and you. It's not just ah, uh, then it's ah uh, ah, uh, then it's ah uh, e, and then ah uh, o, and ah uh, oo, right? So we're changing the vowel. So now we can plan on. Okay, now I have to change to a different vowel. All through playful, fun types of interactions. So maybe with rolling a ball back and forth or blowing bubbles before they get the next sequence of bubbles, they try to imitate those sounds. So it's really important to go through sort of this hierarchy of building vowels and consonants up until we can shape a word. So we get, you know, a uh, consonant vowel, consonant type of combination like mom or dad. And then we keep on going with more length and complexity so that the child's speech becomes more natural. The motor plan is there. And once it's activated through this speech, which is through the speech therapy, which is really what's so exciting about it, we don't have to teach every word and phrase. It's the motor plan that has changed. And now the child can produce a variety of different words with different vowels and consonants, with different, you know, vowel and consonant changes within the words and different consonant vowel shapes. And then other words just keep flying out from there. And that's really the beauty of, you know, doing the therapy, but doing the therapy correctly and using the right intervention because unfortunately where there is more of a novice understanding of speech disorders somebody could be treating apraxia with a therapy that isn't really going to be effective which would be something more just on the lines of articulation therapy where you're trying to have the child say certain words that you want them to produce but without the motor plan that's planning prior to that, that's, you're not going to be successful. Well, this is fascinating. I mean, you know, without having, you know, sat in a room watching this, it's very eye-opening. Honestly, I remember taking my daughter to see an occupational therapy because she had terrible handwriting and watching them do the things about, you know, because it's motor planning as well. You know, Mm -hmm. you have the idea you know, the idea becomes a word that, you know, your muscles have to know how to make that. And, you know, just to watch that. And it was just this huge appreciation for this is complicated and I don't know all of it. And I don't have to know all of it because there are other people like you who do. So we need yeah. to make sure we're, we're getting those kids to you. And how long does it typically take? I mean, what's the, is there a, a, kind of a, an expected time? Right. So, I mean, obviously we, we don't have a crystal ball and, you know, we can't always say um, because it's person dependent, but, you know, it takes a good six months in my experience to really start to see changes in the motor plan so that speech becomes more naturalistic. 
Um, but it can take, you know, up to two years really for the child to feel super successful in their communication. And, you know, because we have to build sort of on those words and then we have to build to phrases. And then a lot of times we have to sort of embed words into those phrases that they already can utilize and that they know. Um, it may take us a little bit longer to build those vocabulary words into having more spontaneous speech. But, you know, I'd say six months is a good marker for success, at least so you know the child's going to have more fluid speech and really feel um, and more, I guess, successful and as a communicator. Well, and I'm thinking, you know, of course, now the other part is how does this all get paid for? Because, I mean, six months to two years of therapy could be really expensive. And so there are some programs that cover that kind of service. I mean, certainly if they're school age, that three and above or those little kids, any caveats about that? I mean, I don't want to say that it's nice, but I, I, the nice thing about apraxia of speech, I guess I would say, is that it is considered, it's a, it's more of a medical condition. So it's more likely to be covered under um, your insurance plan if your provider takes insurance because speech is a developmental delay, right? So they, a lot of insurance companies don't cover developmental disorders, which is ridiculous because you know, we, that they're in the developmental period and this is when we need to have the therapy. Um, but apraxia has looked at more as a medical code, coding. And so it is covered most likely by insurance who cover for speech and language therapy. So would it be appropriate for a provider to use that terminology, apraxia, to send somebody in? I mean, you can always change it if it's not right, correct? Yes, definitely. Yes. If you have to write a script for speech, you know, a lot of times that will definitely help to, you know, get the child in and, and get the coverage, especially, you know, if that's what the disorder is. And if it's not, you know, we use something else. But yeah, it's a definite advantage for, you know, if you need therapy and you have speech disorder and apraxia, that you're, you'll get your treatment covered. Okay. Well, unfortunately, that's important, right? Yes. Oh, yes. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about stuttering and disfluencies. And, you know, I know parents, you know, are frequently will ask about it. Um, you get that kid that, I mean, in my head, it's like the two different things. One is, and maybe it's groping, is that kid who you know wants to say something and they're like buying time, you know, the I, 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 I. Um, mm -hmm. As opposed to the kid who, you know, can't get that, that kind of sound out. Did you want something? Do I have that right? Yeah, actually very, very good descriptions. And I think that's where the difference between, you know, apraxia and dysfluencies come in too, is that it's not truly groping, which is what apraxia is, where you just see them moving their mouth, but really no sound is coming out and stuttering or dysfluencies. You might not hear a sound coming out either, but it's more of a block where they're having their whole face affected in some cases. And there's different kinds of disfluencies as well <laughs> to be complex. Um, you know, there are blocking and there are prolongations and different types of disfluent behaviors. But uh, the behavior you're describing that is similar to groping is blocking, where there's just the airflow isn't coming out at all and the child just really can't phonate. They can't produce the sound versus in apraxia. They're groping to find the motor movements, but they certainly can, they're not blocked and the airflow is there and they could produce a sound, uh, you know, if it was not on command, <laughs> but stuttering is definitely more defined by 
repetitions, prolongations, blocking, different types of behavior that, that you could see in a young child. And there is a typical period of disfluency also, and that does happen. Um, even you know, in children between two to five years of age, you may find a period in their life where they're very disfluent and the parents are super concerned when everyone sort of around them is super concerned because your fluent child is now all of a sudden stuttering. And that can be really scary for parents uh, because they, they, it just came out of nowhere. And that's typically how this happens. And the rule of thumb is, you know, if it continues or persists after six months, you know, then that is most likely going to turn into a, a disorder and it will be, you know, a diagnosis of stuttering. But up until that point, just dis, typical disfluencies happen. And so we just want to, at that point, kind of coach the parents and still appropriate for a referral. You know, I would definitely refer, but then we can e put them at ease and say, you know, I'm not super concerned because we want to see what kinds of behaviors are the child is eliciting when they're having this disfluent period. And we can put them at ease by saying, you know, this is probably a typical disfluent period. Um, and here's some things you can do as the parent. Don't react. Don't don't gasp and say, oh, or don't, you know, get it out. No, you know, you don't want to put that anxiety and pressure on the child because then that could turn into something more behavioral and then a stuttering pattern could continue. So we want to tell them just to be patient and wait and give your child time to get that out and just kind of act like it's not a really big deal. So those would be some of those stutter-like behaviors that are really within the range of normal. Is that mm -hmm. what you're referring yeah, to? Yeah, so we'll see just that I-I-I on the word repetition or the prolongation, ah, go out. And so those will still be within the typical uh, developmental phase, unless you know that the child has had an accident or injury or stroke. You know, then you Good would point. be more concerned that there is something, you know, could be something neurological going on. Same with apraxia as well. How common is true stuttering and does it run in families? Yeah, so it is familial. I definitely see, see that there is some, you know, genetic uh, predisposition to, to have stuttering if somebody in the family. Um, <clears throat> but it's, it's more common that they'll have typical disfluency. There'll be that typical disfluency period than actual stuttering. So it's stuttering, and, and I don't, I don't want to misquote. I don't know the actual percent of individuals in the U.S. who who stutter, but it is, you know, more typical that we get lots of disfluent children that end up just growing out of it. Well, that's probably very reassuring to parents yeah. to be able to tell them that. And what what does the treatment for stuttering look like? I keep thinking of like the King's Speech, you know, right, right, watching that. Yeah. That was a great movie. So again, with young children, you know, all done through play, right? So everything is very motivating and um, we're teaching them kind of the differences between what we say bumpy speech and smooth speech. And so, you know, we kind of use the analogy of like a train going up a hill and, and, you know, it's a little tough and hard to get up there, you know, and there's, it's bumpy. And then when they go down, it's nice and smooth. So it's all about really onset of airflow. And so it's like, we teach them different strategies of, you know, trying to 
exhale and sort of blow out the air while you say the word, you know, very clearly versus, you know, holding your breath and, and making it more difficult to produce that sound. Um, and so really, you know, is that smooth speech or bumpy speech? And when they say something, you're just kind of bringing their awareness to it. As, and they say, oh, bumpy speech. Okay, let's try to make that smooth speech. Let's get your train going down the track nice and slow and smooth. And so we're talking to them and we're demonstrating and we're modeling and really showing them the differences between the two types of speech. And I know, again, just like with apraxia, it's that practice and learning those strategies to really let the airflow happen because it's difficult when you use tends up and when you stress in any speech, you know, setting. So that's the treatment. Is there something to be said about singing? Yes. Yeah. So it is amazing how, and I'm glad you bring that up, how very, very disfluent individuals who can barely speak a sentence can sing with absolute beauty. And that is because it's from different areas of the brain, right? So the left side is really for language, the right side is really more for music. And so we can use it as a strategy to help kind of cross over between the two hemispheres. Um, And it's really a therapy that's also used for adults who have difficulty communicating after a stroke. Um, It's called melodic intonation therapy. And so we use some of those same techniques to try to help the person get the onset of phonation into speech and it's used for stuttering as well. Again, I think about that movie that, you know, the King's Speech where he can't hear himself singing and then they play it back to him and it's perfect. Yeah. And that must be so um, kind of empowering. Like you, you have this ability. It's just, you're locked up right now. And kind of our job is to unlock that part and it'll take time, but look at what you can do. Yeah. And then, you know, with stuttering, it's a little bit different than apraxia and that typically apraxia, once you kind of work through that motor plan, you resolve out of it and you're able to communicate effectively. Whereas stuttering can be a lifelong disability, you know, and without the proper strategies and being able to help your yourself to get through those disfluent periods with some different treatment methods that work for you, whether it's, you know, easy onset speech or whether it is through melody or whether it is through, you know, some type of tapping behavior where you're feeling like you can set a rhythm, you know, to your speech. There's a variety of different techniques that work for that, but it doesn't go away. It Unfortunately, you know, mm. it's not something that you can resolve out of and, you know, not have that disorder anymore. Well, you know, again, in listening to you talk about this, it is certainly complicated and really making that appropriate diagnosis with like so many things is it's really important to name it so you know what the most appropriate intervention is. So let's talk about when should I refer? In my head, again, I'm thinking about at least by a year, most kids can say mama, dada, and maybe a couple other words, you know, by six to nine months, they should be doing ba, 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 da, 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 you know, repeated syllables. They get to 15 months and they can point when you say something. So the receptive language is really pretty good, but they can't say it. By 18 months, they should be doing that and maybe have, I don't know, eight to 10 words or more. A lot of kids have way more than that. By two, 50 to 100 words and putting them together. Does that sound like the right kind of progression? And if there's a 
delay in some of that, that that's time to say, you know what, let's just double check this. Definitely. Yeah, that's the perfect description of you know the development of speech and language. And yeah, I mean, it's anywhere within that process, if things start to go awry, you know, you start to put your antennas up and, you know, really look at that through their well visits. And then by, you know, 18 months is really in my eyes, you know, in a time for an appropriate referral, because that period between 18 months and two years is a six month period where now, you know, it's, if you're not developing any, any more words between that period, it's unlikely that you're going to do that without intervention. So definitely it's like 18 months is, you know, a good time to really be on alert for it and to even think, talk about a referral. And when in doubt, you know, my opinion is we're not trying to scare people, you know, and, and over refer, but you know, there's definitely something different going on. So if when in doubt, just refer because, you know, they can, it might cost something to get an evaluation, but it would cost more in their lifetime if we are missing something that we could definitely intervene and help on an earlier basis. Right. And I'm thinking about, I mean, some of the options, I mean, for me, and again, I don't know that this is exactly how everybody else does it, but, you know, I usually get a hearing screen and make sure that their hearing's okay. And honestly, I've done lots of hearing screens, sent kids for evaluations, and most have been normal. But I did have one kid who could not hear completely in one ear and the speech was off. And, you know, you think, oh, well, you could completely hear on the one side, but that always stuck in my mind. So it's kind of like, this is just a check the box. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, again, for me, it's kind of like my bar's low. You know, what's the harm? And seeing, is this all okay? And, you know, best case scenario, they tell you, you know, things are fine. Let's just sit tight. And not necessarily worst case scenario, but, or, you know, you need some help. And I think certainly with early intervention, that's a good place to start. And that's free. You know, Mm -hmm. those kids can get that first foot in the door and not to be afraid that, you know, oh my gosh, we can't tell our parents that, you know, we need to check this out. Like, it's okay to raise that question. Yeah, I guess, I don't know, you know, I'm a speech pathologist, so I only think in those terms, but I just from what you were saying, you know, kind of think, I wonder why, you know, it might be harder for some pediatricians to go in that direction. Because if you notice that a child had something wrong with their legs or, you know, they weren't walking, I don't think it would be, there would be such a delay in referring. I don't know if it's because it's more it's not as overt as like a physical looking like a physical disability. It's just a question. I was just thinking about when you were saying that, because I feel like maybe there it's, it could be, maybe they're just not understanding these disorders or that there's a lot of hope that it will just develop on its own versus something that you see outwardly, like, you know, uh, your gait is off or you're not walking, you know, by two and a half years. So just, I guess out of curiosity, you know, I'd wonder what, pediatricians as a whole are saying why they may not refer. I think part of it is there's such a broad variation in normal developmental milestones. So there's always that wiggle room on both ends. I mean, you have the kids that, you know, are walking at nine months and then ones that may not until they're 13, 14 months. And that would fall within the realm of normal. Mm -hmm. And I always think like, 
you know, with using like the ages and stages questionnaires, there really is a month on each side. If you look at the nine month, it'll say, you know, this, you know, you could push this back a month, but you could also push it forward. So I often would tell parents, take this home, you know, I'd, I'd go over the scoring, you know, mm-hmm. take this home, put it away for a month and then pull it back out and see where they are. If there's, if you're still seeing this or even better, just come back and see me, let's go over it again. Mm-hmm. So not waiting too long. I do think that there's kind of a, it's not a head in the sand. I think it's really more like thinking that we're offering hope by the wait and see and and not really blowing it off, but just saying, oh, this is probably normal. Let's just wait and see. But I think what you're saying, and and I came up with a phrase in my head, I'm sure I'm not the first one, when in doubt, check it out. (laughs) You know, that maybe it's okay to say, I think this is probably going to fall within the normal range, but occasionally things pop up. Let's just check it out. And, and not being afraid that we're going to, I think that we're going to say something or do something that's going to worry a parent unnecessarily. That I think is probably the motivation. It would right. certainly be for me. Like, yeah. oh, I, I don't want to worry you. But right. on the other hand, I don't know. I Like I said, my bar was pretty low. <laughs> yeah, I try just in the delivery as well. Um, but yeah, I, I understand that. I, I'm just thinking about it in a different way, as you were saying, you know, that you, you pretty much refer and that's great. And I think the majority of people do, um, that I've interacted with, but I've met plenty of parents who have come to me, you know, at three or four and apparently just no one has said anything. And that's really late. I mean, that's two years post uh, Uh where they, you know, you know, if there's no language by two, that there's definitely something going on. Yeah. And that I I just think of what you said, that parent of feeling so sad, like I've lost six months. I mean, you know, in the great scheme of things in a person's life, six months seems small, but it's such an important window when language and, you know, and then reading comes and you want kids to have every advantage Mm -hmm. as early as possible. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, kind of to wrap it up, what would you say, no, I think we've covered the refer. Are there any other <laughs> clinical pearls that you could leave with listeners? Um, I just think, you know, believe in yourselves as pediatricians and that there are so many different disorders and things that you have to think about when you're seeing children. So I understand that's probably very overwhelming in a short time period and a well visit. But I think that, you know, just believe in if you've Think it, as you said, when in doubt, what was it? <laughs> when in doubt, check it out. <laughs> when in doubt, check it out. Yeah, if you can just kind of stick by that motto, I think that we'll all be in a better place. That may be the name of this podcast, <laughs> this episode. Well, I, I like what you're saying that sort of believe in your gut feeling and intuition because it's based in experience. It's not like you're just going, oh, I have this feeling. You have that feeling because you've seen hundreds, if not thousands of children with these trajectories of milestones. And so when one is, I mean, you all just have that feeling like, "Eh, I'm not sure, but something's something's off. Mm -hmm. And I think we have that feeling a lot about kids with autism that we, you know, I'm, I know so many times when I come out and think, Hmm, boy, this just feels like a worry or even saying it to my, my nurse, like, right. Did you think, and we're both like, yep, we're something, something's up. I'm not for sure, but yeah. ah, something's up. And then feeling 
badly that you have to deliver the concern that maybe there's something up with your child. I, I honestly think that that's the part in our hearts because so much of our job is reassurance. No, yeah. this is okay. Or it's just a fever that, you know, this isn't meningitis. Right. These are the signs. It's just a headache. Um, I mean, it's real pain, but it's not a brain tumor. Mm-hmm. That's so much of what we do is assess and reassure. Mm-hmm. And when you can't reassure, when you have to deliver, you know, bad news or raise concern, it's hard, mm-hmm. you know, that's hard to do. And I think, but we're doing a disservice to our patients and our families by not listening to, I mean, you don't want to miss something that you could have really helped. Sure. And, and I, you know, again, when I, I think in my head, you've lost six months or two years, two years is a long time when all that brain development is happening. So, well, thank you. This has been so helpful. And I hope that listeners will take away just a couple of pearls, but it really helps me better understand really the, not just the definition of apraxia, but the, what it looks and feels like, because we've seen it and we just didn't know what call it, I think, maybe accurately. At least that's that's true for me. <laughs> well, I hope so. I hope this information was helpful and everybody learned something new from it. Yeah. Well, thanks again for your time. And I hope everybody will like think about this again in a bigger way because, hey, it is Apraxia Awareness Month. So, right? Yes, definitely. Well, thank yep. you for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Take care. Okay. So many things to know, right? I'm so glad that Dr. Rosen could join us and talk about apraxia and language development because, you know, as pediatricians, this is our bread and butter. This is the stuff we see every day. And having these, you know, pearls of knowledge about what we need to worry about and what to do about it is so helpful, you know, to us and to the families and children that we serve. So here's my takeaways. Number one, of course, uh, thank you to um, Cheryl Rosen for coming back to the podcast and sharing her expertise. Number two, when children are not meeting developmental milestones for receptive or expressive language, check it out. This is going to be a theme throughout these takeaways. So take note and, and remember this if you don't remember anything else. Number three. Childhood apraxia is a speech disorder of motor coordination and planning. Number four, apraxia may look like groping or certain to get sounds out. You know, the, the kid knows what they want to say, but just can't do it. And, and the words just come out, and except for sometimes when it'll come out as a full word, and then it doesn't. So there's kind of an inconsistency to language. Number five, Because this is a motor coordination and planning disorder, there may be associated fine motor and gross motor delays as well. So just um, something to look for when you're doing your um, screenings for development. And I would really recommend that you use a a screening tool, not just your own surveillance. And I really like the ages and stages questionnaire, but there are many others out there. Number six, the differential includes brain trauma and injury. So like think a stroke in an adult, articulation disorders, and phonological processing disorders, as well as autism spectrum disorders. All have different components, but it's important to kind of keep those in, in mind. You know, did this child fall? Um, were they a premature infant that had some um, 
brain impact because of prematurity, etc. Number seven, refer for an evaluation when you're concerned. There is no time to waste. You know, this age is so critical and things are happening every day with the development of neuronal connections. So we don't want to waste time with a, a wait and see approach. Number eight, it helps the speech therapist for us to set the stage of what some of these possibilities might be. And again, autism comes to mind. If you have concerns that there are potential red flags for autism, say that. You don't have to you know, make the diagnosis, but you can say, there are some things that I'm seeing and some of it makes me think about symptoms that we see with autism and I really just need to get this checked out. Or there's a disorder called apraxia where sometimes children have difficulty making words. Let's have an expert really help us tease that out. And that way, when the kid gets to the speech therapist, they're not hearing a diagnosis out of the blue that they're not prepared for. Number nine, the evaluation with this therapist, especially with these young kids, is play. Really smart play. They're looking at receptive language, reciprocity, attention, retention, comprehension. It's complicated, so refer to the experts. Number 10, therapy for apraxia looks like learning a sport and building motor memory. Repetition and practice is key. Number 11, moving on to stuttering. And stutter-like disfluencies are common, and these typically occur in the age group two to five years. It looks like what Dr. Rosen described as blocking, and they may be like, I almost think about it like buying time to to think about something. The I, 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 I want that. If it's prolonged, it may be true stuttering. And again, if you're not sure about what's causing bumpy speed, refer. Number 12, stuttering is familial, so make sure you take a good history. Number 13, stuttering can be a lifelong disorder. It can be improved with therapy versus apraxia, which often resolves within a six to month, I'm sorry, which often resolves with six months to two years of intervention. Again, refer. Number 14, Trust your expertise to know what feels like a typical development. It may be indeed that. And, and, you know, don't discount what you think you're seeing. Believe your intuition. Number 15, when in doubt, check it out. Thank you so much for listening today. I know that these language disorders are things that we see really frequently, and we want to be on top of it and you know, for me, it's refer early and get some more information. It's important. I hope you have a great day. Keep doing wonderful things for kids. We're all in this together. And I appreciate you joining me. Look forward to joining me next week. And as always, if you would rate and review Pediatric Meltdown, it's really helpful as we build our listenership. And as always, I would love to hear from you. And you can DM me on Instagram at Pediatric Meltdown. I'm also on Twitter at Leah Gugino. And you can check out my website as well at www.medicalbhs.com. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. 
In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.